When I started writing Naked Lunch, people offered their opinions. Disgusting, they said. Pornographic, un-American trash, unpublishable. Well, it came out in 1959, and it found an audience. Town meetings, book burnings, and an inquiry by the state Supreme Court. That book made quite a little impression. Now, 30 years later, Hollywood, in its infinite wisdom, has turned it into a movie. 30 feet tall, in living color. Cover your eyes, America. Run for your lives. You're a mocked man, Bill. You're just gonna have to leave town. Tourist class, I'm afraid. Thought you were finished with doing weird stuff. I thought I was too, but I guess I'm not. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. I don't know why I'm doing this in like my narrator voice, but whatever. With me, as always, is Cecil Never Funny Trachtenberg. I'm hilarious. You thought Repossessed was funny. It was. I actually made a Repossessed joke in this week's video because it had Linda Blair in it. Of course it did. Just to spite you. Of course you did. <laughs> and then Peter's out this week, and no, to rest, people even ask me, like, oh, is there a problem with you and Peter? Did Peter get fired? Did he quit? No, he literally is having internet problems and things of that nature. He promises he will be back next week because he really wants to do next week's topic. So Peter is out literally because of things that I can't help. Sitting in for him is a man I like to go to when I have no other options. Fred Fritz. That is indeed I, the last hope for all mankind. Well, I don't know about mankind, but okay, humankind, dog kind, ape kind, some kind, be kind, be kind, rewind, whatever. And, you, and you're that telling the, me I'm not funny. I don't know. Uh, shush you. <laughs> well, I was going to say that was kind of funny. Shut up, you. <laughs> Shut up, all of you. I'll fire every one of you. In the meantime, before you get fired, you got to go to adamandeve.com. You use the promo code DROME, and you will get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You will get six free DVDs free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. What I want to talk about is adaptations, because right now we've got all these comic book movies coming out, and then earlier in the 2000s there were all these video game movies, and then since the dawn of film they've been adapting novels and, com you know, and then comic books and comic strips and all this stuff. What does it take to, for an adaptation to be good? Should it be literal? Should it be more in the spirit? I mean, what what is the best 
say, novel to film adaptation you've ever seen? Hard to just come off the top of my head. Uh, I can say right off the bat that one I've seen done several times that I thought was done well in each incarnation was Of Mice and Men. That one has not been done word for word. So I would say that, uh, you know, a lot of this has to do with the source material to begin with. Because I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I think sometimes an adaptation, would, would, they always want to add something in. Like you brought up Of Mice and Men. The one that I think is, I haven't read the book in since the 90s, so I don't remember how accurate it is, but is that one with John Malkovich and Gary Sinise. I think that one captures the spirit of the characters and the book, but it's... I don't remember how actually accurate it is. While I do remember some of the earlier adaptations were quite different, so I don't know if that meant they were more or less accurate. Well, the Malkovich one uh, was uh, directed by Gary Sinise, who plays uh, George in it, is probably my favorite adaption, but they did make some changes, uh, one of which I, I don't know if I agreed with, but I thought the performances really rose to the top. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise getting that given that Sinise is an actor as well as a director. But uh, another adaption that just hit me that is one of my favorites was actually a made-for-TV miniseries called Noble House with Pierce Brosnan from the James Clavell novel. And I thought that one was really good, too. The first thing that comes to mind is The Thing, which uh, was based off of uh, Who Goes There and uh, loosely based I mean, it was uh, it was more going back to that rather than the the first the the thing from another world, which was the first movie that uh, adapted it. And it, it's just such an amazing film, and uh, it shows that uh, you can take some uh, source material and do something different with it, but still make it good and pay a certain amount of uh, respect to the original material because it was uh, one of John Carpenter's favorite books uh, when he was growing up. So uh, I know there's there's going to be other answers, but that's really the first one that comes to mind. Well, and in the case of The Thing, e even that is not... I mean, John Carpenter's version is much more accurate to who goes there. But even then, he condensed... There's like eight more characters in the short story than there are in the movie. He condensed a couple of characters from the book, from the, the novella, into just one character So for the movie. So even then... It's not necessarily accurate, even though it follows the story. Is that how you should do an adaptation? Should you kind of go, there are just way too many characters in this. It's just going to confuse the audience. Or is that disingenuous to the original writer? It depends, really, because sometimes when you condense characters or you mix things up a little too much, you ruin certain things like certain characters are there for a reason. But if one character maybe uh, doesn't have a very pivotal part for the film uh, and you can condense them down for the sake of uh, making the film a little bit shorter and maybe not having another person into it, then it works. But sometimes uh, I get annoyed when uh, you'll watch a movie that's an adaptation of a book or a remake or something, and they'll take like three characters and merge them into one. And so it, it just feels weird because then it's like, all right, well, why is this person doing this stuff that this other character did? And and then even if you're not familiar with the source material, sometimes the characters' actions just feel off, and it's because they're actually doing the uh, the job of three different people. 
basically, I think what we're we're really getting to here is the idea that it, are they capturing the spirit of a novel first? Uh, there's going to be changes. There has to be changes. When you get to uh, the question of characters, it depends on how many characters we're talking about. I've seen unnecessary condensing, but then you could take something like, say, The Great Escape, which, I mean, there were lots of people involved with the real life escape and they condensed those men down to a key few to represent them in the film and there's still a lot of characters uh i feel that's the same thing with the thing i feel the thing is perfect as it is i I agree with cecil's assessment this is a great adaption but it's just a great movie too and that's probably another question but i'd say you you have to if there's too many characters it, it can get unwieldy it can uh make the runtime longer than it needs to be so yes making it easier on the audience for, for in in the case i'm going to bring up like uh, carl sagan's contact in the movie the robert zemeckis film matthew mcconaughey's character of polymer joss is actually four different characters in the novel they all he serves the same function that they do as being the religious voice to counteract ellie's faith in science but they thought it would be quote according to the commentary track quote easier for the audience to follow one actor instead of four actors. Isn't that kind of saying you're too stupid to follow four different characters, so we had to make it one? Well, I guess, yes, what you're saying is true, that that, uh, they don't have much faith in audiences, and we see that there is a dumbing down in storytelling, and so I would agree with that assessment. I'd have to say that, again, it depends on what purpose they serve and how long they serve it. Uh, I haven't read Contact, so I can't speak for that. I'd have to say the way the movie played out, I thought it played fine. As to whether or not a a second or a third or even a fourth character from the book would have added to that, I I can't say in all honesty. I I really can't answer that one. I haven't read Contact either, so uh, I can't say. But it does seem, uh, I see it all the time, there is definitely a dumbing down of movies where sometimes I don't fault the studios. Uh, I get irritated, but when you're sitting in a movie, like, um, for example, uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to see uh, the movie The Forest. Now, not a good movie at all, but the movie starts off and uh, there was a couple sitting next to me. Right after the trailers stopped, the girlfriend turns to her boyfriend. She's like, I want to go get some popcorn. So they get up, they leave the theater, they go get popcorn. They come back maybe five, ten minutes later, and, you know, they've got their drinks and everything. In the beginning of the movie, it really set up what was happening. You know, this girl, she went over to Japan and all that. And so as they sit down and the movie, you know, has already basically laid out what the plot was going to be. And a couple minutes after this, the girl turns to her boyfriend. She's like, I don't get what's going on. This is dumb. And I'm like... Well, you missed the beginning of the movie. Like, that's not the fault of the movie. So I understand sometimes when studios will do things like dumbing certain things down because there are a lot of dumb people that uh, go to, you know, file into the movies. In response to that, I've also seen where the character is established and they just don't spend time with them. A good example is a movie called John Dies at the End is a movie I recommend and I really enjoyed it. But uh, there's a character of, I believe her name was Amy, who 
who's very important or at least integral in the book. And in the movie, she's she's present. She still serves a purpose, but they really don't expand on that any further than what you see. And there's a lot more of her in the book. And there's an example, I think, of what you're talking about is just that I think they felt it would take away from the two main characters to focus more on this third pivotal character. So they focus just on these two. You know, obviously, if we're talking about stories that have seven, eight or more characters, I don't think they have faith in audiences. They probably don't. But then what about when arguably, and I'm going to probably take a lot of heat on this one, where the movie adaptation makes changes for the better from the novel? For instance, do androids dream of electric sheep versus Blade Runner? I think do androids dream of electric sheep was a visionary novel. I think the changes that David Peoples made to it from adapting it from what was then called Dangerous Days into what became Blade Runner made it better. It fleshed out that world. It dumped the mercerism part, which I just despised from the novel. So I was happy about that. I actually think Blade Runner is better than Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep. That might be film snob heresy. I don't know. No, I don't think uh, you're wrong in that aspect. I think that uh, there are some times where the book will end up, or I'm sorry, the movie will end up surpassing the book because they can take time to reestablish things or maybe fix some things that uh, weren't as clear in the book. Now, the majority of the time, the book will be better simply because they have more time to uh, extrapolate and expand upon certain things. You know, books have the luxury of being as long as they really feel they're necessary, whereas movies pretty much have a th- about a three-hour window. And sometimes there are certain stories that just uh, are longer than that. And, uh, you know, maybe they get split into multiple films, but most chances you'll get a movie that's, okay, here's a a book that's 500 pages. We need to squeeze this into a 90 minute movie. So they'll condense things down, which is why a lot of times the adaptations, uh, if you're familiar with the source material, you get angry because you're like, oh, they skipped over this character or they didn't do this character justice or they, uh, you know, completely got rid of this person's backstory. Or (laughs) I'm going to go into another thing i just recently saw the fifth wave and which was a young adult novel that was um turned into a movie yet another one they made the decision of there was a character in the in the book who had a very deep backstory for the movie they decided to completely skip his backstory because they wanted the movie to focus more on the love story so uh they were kind of taking the cue from twilight where they were like all right well Uh, This movie is aimed at a young adult audience, so we need to focus on what the young adult audience wants. Do they want to hear about this kid's backstory, about how uh, he was too scared and his sister ended up dying because of it? Or do you want to see Chloe Grace Moretz and this dude with a six-pack's abs fall in love and and everything is all wonderful? So they went with that angle, which actually ended up pissing off people who were already fans of the book. To expand on what Cecil said when a a writer writes a novel obviously they take as much time as they feel necessary to write and they can fix their mistakes as they go and then of course the book eventually comes out then the book is out for years and years and years and sometimes it's a fan of the book that will adapt it to a film and then they have even more years to look at that book and say oh this didn't kind of work this did they can improve upon it Uh, obviously that can go in the opposite direction too but uh, sometimes it's just a matter of when 
the story is released. Uh, a good example, I think, is Logan's Run. I do feel that even though Logan's Run is di- is dated by today's standards, it's a. I think the way it's presented in the film is better than the book, more specifically because of the ending. Uh, the ending in the book is very well far out. Uh, it's very sci-fi of its time from the pulp novels of the period it was written and i like the uh, I, I don't know how to word maybe the dystopian twist at the end of the movie better without giving it away you know 30 uh, year old spoilers here that to me is a positive example and I, i'm just i'm drawing a blank on what's a good negative example of changing something like that I know a lot of people didn't like, say, Watchmen, where they changed the uh, the giant squid alien. Except uh, I will I will say I liked that version better than the comic. I liked the version in the movie better than the giant squid alien. Well, there you go. Uh, that's where people can be split. I t- I did talk to someone once who actually said they preferred the book ending to Logan's Run. I find that's a rare opinion on that but it does exist so it comes down to i think tastes also and whether or not you've read the book something we're not really addressing yet is did you read the book and that seems to be one of the biggest problems that most people have is did they read the book or didn't they well then that also brings up what about when the book and we're still sticking with books right now when the book is essentially unadaptable something like naked lunch when Cronenberg went into quote adapt Naked Lunch after he said he hadn't read the book in years and rereading it, he's like, there is absolutely no way this would ever be on film. It just can't. It physically cannot exist on film. So that's why he decided to kind of weave parts of the book into the somewhat true version of Burroughs' history. What about something like Naked Lunch? It's un- unadaptable. Or Harlan Ellison's Mephisto and Onyx. They've been trying since the 90s to come up with a way to actually do that on film. And it's written in the book, the novella is written in such a way it is almost unfilmable. It's weird because, like, if there's something where the people involved admit, they're just like, look, there's no way we can do this accurately. Why do they insist on doing it then? I mean, they they keep pushing forward for movies like, uh, you know, they want to do Akira, but then they're like, well, we can't do Akira uh, really the way that it was done and we're going to change this and we're going to, it's like, well then, then don't do it. Like why? It's not necessary to do it. Like in the case of naked lunch, it's a fantastic movie. You can't call it an accurate adaptation of the book because like I said, that's unfilmable, but it's a great film. Well, that's the thing. That's that's because Lynch handled it. So, but the majority of the time, or I'm oh God, I'm sorry. Cronenberg. Yeah, Cronenberg did it, and uh, so it's it's comes out, it's amazing, and it is a very good, very bizarre movie, but it's completely different from the book. I haven't read the book, but I had a friend of mine who was a big uh, Burroughs fan, and uh, he was talking about how, even though, like, he was explaining, like, differences between the book and the movie and stuff, and uh, was saying it didn't piss him off because it still felt like it was its own thing, but it it worked. The majority of the time, they're going to take somebody who is not familiar with the source material and just tries to, you know, do their own spin, which I always love. They're like, well, this material, it's dated and it won't work today, so we need to do it fresh. And 90% of the time, whenever you hear that, you get garbage. I I will, again, agree with Cecil about why bother sometimes, uh, because some things just don't adapt and that's fine there are things that work in a comic things that work in a play so on and so forth that don't translate film very well 
in the case of Naked Lunch, there was no reason to adapt the book literally. Uh, the book would serve no purpose as a literal adaption. And Cronenberg used Burroughs' life as a framework to not just bring the book to people, but to sort of explain the book, that there are elements of the film itself trying to tell you, oh, why is this book interesting? Why should I even be interested in this book? Which I think is in and of itself kind of an interesting approach. So in the end, it's more of an inspired by as opposed to an adaption. So uh, I don't know what else to really add other than that. Uh, just to say I do agree with Cecil. Sometimes there's just no point in adapting it. Well, speaking of inspired by, what about when the source material is, say, a short story or something like that, and it's just the springboard for the movie. For instance, a lot of people don't realize that John Carpenter's They Live is not an original property. It's based on a story called Eight O'Clock in the Morning, which is a 16-page story. You literally cannot adapt that to a 90-minute film. What, he took, what, what Carpenter did so brilliantly was he took the, the themes and the idea of Eight O'Clock in the Morning and made that into They Live. Now that said, if you watch They Live first and you go back and read 8 o'clock in the morning, you're going to be like, okay, other than some vast, wide similarities, there's these two things are totally different. Sure, there's a lot of things out there that are like that where uh, you'll find out, uh, you know, this was uh, originally a novel or it was originally uh, a, a TV series or a book or something. Sometimes uh, the other thing, too, that Hollywood likes to do They'll remake a movie, but then they'll change the name to kind of throw people off. So, you know, you don't know that this is a remake because there's been a few times where I'm watching a movie and I'm like, hey, this seems a lot like, hey, you know, <laughs> they changed the name. You know, in the case of that, going back to the Cronenberg thing is that when you've got somebody like Carpenter who was, you know, at, at the, the prime of his, his game and he comes along and adapts uh, this thing, you're getting somebody who was a cut above a lot of your standard um, directors and stuff. So you'll get somebody who is going to actually take this and make it into something amazing, as opposed to somebody who would maybe take the concept and then just churn it out into another generic thing. What about Stephen King? Stephen King seems to be so hard to adapt to the screen, and yet so enjoyable even when it fails, like The Running Man. It's only similar to The Running Man story in the broad strokes. I love the movie, don't mistake. I think the movie's great. It's just so different from the book. I consider it kind of its own thing. Do you think we'd ever get an accurate adaptation of The Running Man, especially post 9-11? I'm going to give a plot spoiler here. The novel ends with the main character flying a 747 into the games building, which is a double tower filled with filled with plastic explosives while giving the middle finger to Killian. Do you think post 9-11 we're ever going to get a Running Man adaptation that actually uses that ending? No, I don't think we will. And one quick backtrack, if I can say something back to They Live uh, that hit me while uh, Cecil was talking, was that there's something else to the idea of adaption. I mentioned about time with Logan's run, and when Carpenter set out to adapt this, he had an analogy in his mind when he had read the story, and that is what he used as the springboard to write the script, which was he wanted these aliens to represent Reaganomics of the time. That's, I think, a very large part in the case of that. So 
again, he wouldn't have been able to literally adapt the story as it was because it wouldn't be long enough. But mixed with that modern analogy that he created, that became a very strong inspiration for the film in and of itself. Uh, Those two things combined. As for the running man, who's to say? I just said no, but who's to say? Maybe in five, ten, or how many years someone will think of an analogy to use for the running man. I mean, it's sort of funny that we're in this post television game show running man esque world now and uh, it it almost seems dated by its own concept but perhaps someone can do the same with it time uh i forget what the the equation is but it's like you know time eventually things kind of become okay like uh you know there titanic when it happened was a horrible disaster and now uh, there is a children's float that looks like the Titanic sinking and kids can slide down it into water. Uh, there was I'll a never mo- let go, Cecil. <laughs> Rose, never let go. There was a movie that came out uh, around the year 2000 called Vampire of the Titanic. And it was and they, they actually um, they ch- well changed to uh, Titanic 2000. But it was about two vampires on the recommissioned Titanic. And, of course, the boat you know, gets hit by an iceberg and it sinks. A terrible movie. It goes to show that with enough time, you know, everything is fair game. So uh, who, who knows? I don't know if we'll ever get, you know, a proper adaptation of The Running Man. But uh, who knows? In 20 years... It, you know, 9-11 might be looked at slightly differently. And uh, maybe if there's a movie where people are flying planes into something, it wouldn't uh, immediately draw up, uh, you know, the notion of 9-11. Uh, you know, time will go by and things will change and pop culture will change. And maybe some people that grew up, you know, when they were young when 9-11 happened might want to do a movie where they uh, kind of focus on terrorism in that way and they make a movie where terrorists are doing something like that but it's kind of loosely based on what happened speaking of the running man what about its author stephen king for some reason this man cannot seem to get his work adapted properly onto film including himself i mean maximum overdrive was a complete train wreck and no it wasn't yes it was no it wasn't it was a car crash with with, with a green goblin face well that would have been a truck crash yeah I mean, like, even when he writes the screenplay, for instance, Silver Bullet, he wrote the screenplay, and he he looked back and went, wow, that was really bad. Why is Stephen King so hard to adapt from book to film? And even when they do a good movie, it strays so far from the source material, you go, well, you changed so much, it's not even an adaptation anymore. Why is Stephen King so freaking hard to adapt? Well, in this case, I, I think this answer is a little easier it goes back to the that in a book, it can be as long as it needs to be. It can talk about everything it wants to. It can explore every angle, every idea, every feeling, every thought. And in the case of King, that's pretty much how he writes. There's very little unexplored in a King novel. And uh, a lot of what goes on in people's heads and their emotions and their feelings play a large part. Uh, the oh, dark I, I remember when I saw the Salem's Lot, the the seventies one by Toby Hooper. I remember I was ten minutes into the movie and I'm like, they're a hundred pages into the book already. What the hell? Well, they they have to look for the through line. That's just it. Uh, you can't adapt King literally because 
you'd have to have well i mean i guess it is possible if you did it each as a series but as a movie no you can't and even then even as a series again there's a lot of in people's heads in stephen king's stuff now some of that you can translate to dialogue between two characters but there's limits to that and that's where you have to find that through line that spirit of a story to tell it because it's it's just impossible you you can't do it they go uh they take his stuff and and like fred said uh his stuff it's so in depth it's every little notion every little thing a character's thinking about every just tiny little thing and even with something like the mist where was a short story they still had to make that into uh an over two hour long movie to really do it proper justice and uh, i think that king's stuff is just really in depth and it's hard to adapt that king is a great director or i'm sorry a great writer but he is a tad full of himself like when uh he hated the shining and then he insisted on doing his own version, and his own version is not as good. It's like I sometimes... didn't like either one, but yeah, the miniseries was almost unbearable. Yeah, it's like uh, how could you not like The Shining? What's wrong with you? I've never liked that movie. I've tried. Everybody always tells me how amazing it is. It's like 2001 with me. I try to like it, and I just get pissed off every time I try and watch it. Have either of you ever read Legion by William Peter Blatty? the book that was eventually kind of turned into Exorcist 3? No. I started it, but no, I didn't finish it. There are parts, I mean, we all know Exorcist 3 had a really tumultuous post-production to the point where the ending is changed and like 40 minutes were lost. I, I saw the movie and then I read the novel. There are scenes in the movie that are exact, word for word, shot for shot from the novel. And then when 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 I could see... I didn't notice this the first time I saw it, but I noticed abrupt edits where like a character would start to open their mouth. And I'm like, okay, in the book, there's a line of dialogue there that they just cut out. What about when you almost exactly adapt a novel? In the case of Exorcist 3, obviously we've never seen the director's cut. I think it would have worked, especially if they kept the book's ending, which there's no way Gramercy was going to do, or Morgan Creek, I mean, was going to do. But what about when they actually adapt it? And it's almost like I said, there are scenes that are exact word for word from the novel. Well, I don't think that the answers are going to change much. Uh, it really falls down to who's adapting it and what what the purpose of the adaption is. It, it makes it very difficult. I, I can't think of. Well, actually, I can think of I saw a movie uh, adaption of a book called A Separate Piece, and the film adaption was fairly faithful i would say to the 90 percentile and it was the dullest thing i've ever sat through in my life so this is also i've heard the same thing about the 70s rich man poor man series that that people said it was adapted almost exactly and it was one of the dullest mini series ever made at that point like just somehow adapting it exactly did not work well, this is not so much a novel, but I think it, it definitely echoes exactly what I'm saying, that Mel Gibson was in an adaption of uh, Hamlet uh, done by Zeffirelli, and the way they filmed it was like a stage play. So this is a theatrical movie done like a stage play, right down to the, the ghost of the father appearing, and it looks like he has literally like powder on his face. And I just was sitting in the theater going, 
why would you bother with this? Then Kenneth Branagh does it, and Kenneth, who comes from the theater, knows the difference between the two, and he makes this giant theatrical film, and when the father comes back from the dead in that, I mean, this there's a horse, a, you know, a black horse, the chasms of hell are opening up, fires coming from the ground. It's very theatrical, and I think that there you go. It, a movie is a movie, and that's what it has to be. It has to affect you the way movies do. It's pacing, it's tone, it's everything. And if the book doesn't feel that way in and of itself, it's it's not going to translate well to a theatrical film. Sometimes it works. Much like Fred said, it really depends on who's doing it. You can have people that will do it properly, and it'll turn out amazing. And then uh, you'll have oddities like uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Romeo and Juliet, where it was updated to current times, but they used Shakespeare's wording, or I guess you could that say. That movie's an abomination. Lloyd Kaufman did the best Romeo and Juliet adaptation ever. I will agree with you on that. <laughs> I love Romeo and Juliet. I think that uh, from a, a visual standpoint, I, I think it was Baz Luhrmann directed that one. I liked the look of it very much. I thought it was cool. It was very colorful. It was everything was very bright and vibrant. And but just them using Shakespeare dialogue, it felt so wrong. It did not work for me at all. But uh, I did not like that. I didn't. I that's the thing. I didn't like the. I couldn't get into it because of that. But I appreciated the fact that I thought that it like the the production value that went into it was high. It's just that everything else was terrible. I didn't. Uh, you know, not not crapping on Shakespeare, but it, it didn't work. You know, when when people are pointing their guns at each other, going draw your sword, I'm like, ah, this sucks. You know, it didn't work. Well, what about when you go from one visual medium, comic books, to another visual medium, movies? Because novels are not a visual medium. They're a text-based medium, whereas comic books are visual. What about when you move that to either movies or TV? Like one of the examples I'm going to bring up, because Fred brought up Watchmen earlier, and like I said, I as much as I like the comic, I actually prefer the movie. I think for once Zack Snyder made changes that made sense. Look at, like, The Walking Dead, Cecil, for all the crap I give that show and for all of the stupid decisions the showrunners make in that show, I can't stand the comic book. I think Robert Kirkman is a terrible writer. I gave up reading that comic after the first 30 or so issues. I could not. Robert Kirkman is a terrible writer. Frank Darbaugh, when he adapted it into TV, he made everything better. I like the TV series version way better than the comic version. And I know that's that's some film snob heresy right there. What about when the movie or TV show is better than the comic source material? It happens. It happens quite a bit because... Uh... Uh, with the comics, they'll take uh, they'll use the comics a lot of times as storyboards, which uh, is awesome. And uh, they'll condense story arcs down because a lot of times you'll have a story arc that maybe will run an entire year or something. They'll take out the best bits, condense it down and make it into a, you know, two, two and a half hour movie. And it's it's fantastic. It's something like Sin City, where they did a incredibly great job of adapting that very closely they used the story they used the those books as the storyboard and that one translated beautifully to the screen 
Then you have uh, some other ones where they'll take liberties. You got uh, Green Lantern, where they just tried to condense the story too much. It was like instead of trying to take one story arc and melding that into one movie, they tried to take the entire history of Green Lantern and mesh it into like one two hour movie. And it ended up just feeling raced and it was terrible. With uh, something like The Walking Dead, uh, they have... It started off, uh, you had uh, Durbont working on it, who is just phenomenal. And uh, the, I think that uh, he really helped to mold that show and start it going in a very good direction. Uh, I wasn't incredibly into the comics. I don't like I haven't read. I, I stopped reading them a long time ago. It's been a while, so I'd have to go back and reread a lot of the old ones. So I can't say for sure, but I know that I enjoy the hell out of the show. Well, I, I think Cecil covered a lot of it. First of all, as far as Walking Dead, I, I'm I'm not going to be able to comment on that. I can't stand the show and really didn't care for what I saw in the comics. But an example that came right to my mind of an interesting and I think good adaption was American Splendor. This kind of goes back to the Naked Lunch thing. You couldn't really adapt that one for one from the source material to a full full feature length film so they created a narrative and just sort of interweaved things from the comics into the man's actual life and the comics are based on his actual life but they made it more compelling and more interesting and that was a very good adaption of those comics uh i'd say most whoever read the comics would be bored with them i they weren't very compelling they were just they were groundbreaking for their time but the movie was a movie it was a really good movie well acted well directed the script was very tight i think that that's again what it comes down to is just who's involved and what are they adapting it why are they adapting it that's also a good question uh in the case of walking dead it's revolutionary now because it seems like somebody in Hollywood finally got the right idea. Hey, we could if we stay more faithful to these things, people will like them. But in the end, they always end up changing them anyway. So it's just sort of a hybrid situation. And it, it just has to do more with who's involved. Well, I think it also has to do in the case of comics. Sometimes you're trying to appease too many audiences at the same time. I think that's why nowadays they're getting comic adaptations more right than they're not. There was those dark times where they were missing every single time because when they were making a movie, they were saying, we, we can't make this movie for the comic book fans. We have to make this movie for people who aren't comic book fans. Like, I know Cecil likes the X-Men movies. The first X-Men movie was straight up made when 20, 20th Century Fox said the reason they had to change all the costumes was not because they didn't work, although that was the official excuse, but it later came out that they didn't think mainstream audiences would would quote accept the colorful costumes from the comics so we have to change it We're, they're not making these movies for the comic book fans they're making these movies for people who aren't comic book fans that's one of the most cynical reasons to ever adapt a comic book is for the people who don't read the comic well uh, in that case though the change in the costumes was a good idea uh, it uh, certain things just don't translate uh, it would have looked ridiculous 
with some of the costumes that they had. Uh, it just it, it wouldn't have worked. People wouldn't have taken it as seriously. And it might have ended there. You know, we might have had one X-Men movie and people went, oh, it was it was cool. But, oh, God, they wore these really stupid Spanish. And even they goofed on it in the movie. It was like, you know, what do you when when uh, they asked Wolverine about the outfit? He's like, what do you want me to wear? Yellow spandex. And it's true. It's like in the uh, comics, it works. But then when you translate that to reality, it just looks silly and it doesn't make sense. I mean, some of the outfits that they'd be wearing would just be outlandish. And uh, so I, while I understand that it is kind of going against things, there are changes that need to be made. I mean, the Captain America suit is different from the uh, comic book. You know, they've changed Personally, it. I, I, I don't like the Captain America. The chin strap makes it look ridiculous, I think. I think the chin strap on the Captain America costume looks worse than the Albert Pune 1990 Captain America <laughs> costume with the fake wings. I'd rather have the rubber ear wings than the chin. That chin strap makes it look like he's about to get electrolysis done. That I, Every time I see that, I can't take Cap seriously with the chin strap. I, I don't see that. I think that the new outfit is very cool. I think that the uh, the old uh, Albert Pion one is hilarious because he's got the rubber ears and it's just like that's one where it's so like accurate. Yeah, I want to point that to people when they're like, oh, the costume isn't the way that it should be. It's like, oh, yeah, well, look at this. This is 100 percent accurate and it looks ridiculous. I, I'm on Cecil's side on this one that uh, I, I don't think the new outfit's bad at all, especially not because of a chin strap. I have to say, I will disagree with you, Josh, on this uh, about disregarding the comic book fans. While you, you always have to keep the fans of anything in mind, I don't think any filmmaker owes the comic book fans anything. I know that's very, that sounds disrespectful to them, but it, it doesn't, it's not meant to be. A movie must survive as its own thing. For me, a great example of this would be the film 300. I really don't like that movie. Lots of people love that film. They say, oh, it's so amazingly faithful to the comic. And that's part of my problem is that I had read the comic and I'm watching the movie and I felt like I was not getting anything new out of it. It was it was dull and it was boring to me. The, the sped up slow down thing was terrible, but that's another issue. I think a movie must be its own thing. It's it it's a film by its very nature. It's not the comic book. And the whole thing about uh, costumes is a perfect example of that. Some things work in animated and or comic book form they your mind already says all right this is an alternate world it's like when you do a movie in black and white it's by its nature it's removed from reality so you'll accept certain things and that happens with comic books that happens with animated films when you do live action movies it's a whole other animal and it must allowed to be that thing i'm not saying you can't change that break through walls test it do different things but it's still is what it is. It's a movie, and it must be allowed to be that. Have you ever had your your interpretation of a story altered depending on what you saw, it, what you encountered first? Like, if you read the book before you saw the movie, does that color how you see the movie, or vice versa? If you saw the movie first, for instance, for me, I didn't read Richard Matheson's I Am Legend until after I'd seen the Charlton Heston Omega Man movie. When I was reading the the novel. I kept picturing Neville as Charlton Heston in my head until they got to the point where he's a huge Arnold Schwarzenegger type guy with a giant long beard in the book. And I'm like, 
but in my head, I'm still picturing Charlton Heston. So does it matter which version you encounter first? Does one color the other in either direction? Yeah, it can affect people that way, uh, especially if it's a movie that based on a book that's very narrative he- or uh, narration heavy. So you'll be watching the movie and or I'm sorry, you'll be reading the book after you've seen the movie, but then you'll be reading it in that character's voice something like that, or you'll see the character instead of the way that the character's written, because they'll they'll change it uh, however they see fit for the uh, whoever was the best actor who got the role. So uh, it depends. I mean, sometimes I think time also is a good uh, way of distancing yourself. Like if you see a movie and maybe 10 years later you read the book, you uh, will have distanced yourself enough that you can start reading it and maybe start to formulate your own ideas into it as opposed to uh, the actors and the world that was created uh, with the book. So or uh, especially with the comics or something where if you see the comic book movie and then you go and you read the book, uh, you're getting the visual aspect in there as well. So it's it's kind of working to formulate it in a different way. It uh, it also depends on uh, uh, the impressionable uh, impressionableness. How impress? I guess how impressionable a person is, like how influenced they are by what they see, and whether or not they can watch something else or read something else and look into it in a different way. Well, I have to say that age plays a factor in this. Uh, when I was younger, it definitely bothered me a lot more. Uh, when I was in my twenties, and I would see something, I'd, I'd go, "Oh man, they totally screwed that up," or "That person's so not that character." Uh, whereas now, I am. I find I'm more forgiving. And so time does seem to play a factor in that. Uh, One example that comes to my mind, though, was Wild at Heart. I actually read the novella before I saw the David Lynch movie. And at the time, I really hated the movie. I still don't have a a fondness for it, but I, I can watch it and enjoy it now. But at the time, there were so many changes to the novella that I just was sitting there going, what's the point? Why, you know, why did you do this? Uh, Why did you even bother? Because I felt that the soul of the novel had been kind of ripped out and there was just this weird, I don't know how to explain, David Lynch just being David Lynch, I guess. Lynchian. Lynchian, yeah, but not necessarily in a good way. The whole thing with the good fairy and Wizard of Oz, that has nothing to do with the novella, nothing at all. I don't necessarily mind that he went for a happy ending, whereas the book is kind of a downer in a, in a way. Uh, it's just it didn't feel like the spirit, what we were talking about earlier, about how the spirit of a novel has to at least be adhered to to work in the film. And that's a good example where it didn't. Uh, the cast was fine. So that's where it's a little more difficult for me to say. I, I don't recall ever hating an actor completely who played the role. It has more to do with what they did with the character. Like Harry Dean Stanton played the detective in the movie. And I love that character in the book. And they completely changed that. And I hated what they did with that character. So that bothers me more than, say, even the actor that plays it. Well, along those same lines, what about a sub-question here, which would be, when there are multiple actors that play the same character, what version do you then picture in your head? Like Hannibal Lecter. I didn't read Red Dragon until after I'd seen Manhunter. I'd already seen Silence of the Lambs at this point. To me, Brian Cox is Hannibal Lecter, not Anthony Hopkins. Or like, you know, if you've, if you've ever read Nothing Lasts Forever, do you picture Bruce Willis or Frank Sinatra? 
because they're both playing the same character in different movies. They're both playing the character that would become John McClane, although he had a different name in the books. So sometimes do the different actors affect how you interpret that same character in the book? Yeah, it can. It depends, especially if you uh, if you like the actor who's playing it, you might be uh, more uh, more interested in, in having him kind of be the visual person that you read. So Ryan uh, Cox is way more chilling as Hannibal Lecter than Anthony Hopkins ever was. Yeah, I think Manhunt uh, or Manhunter does not get a fair shake because Sounds of the Lambs, I think, is an amazing movie. But Manhunter is also phenomenal and uh, it just does not get the love that it uh, it deserves. It's tough. It's tough to say because I think that uh, I think that they both do an incredible job of portraying a very multi-layered character. Well, Brian Cox, without a doubt, I've always felt that he was the quintessential Hannibal Lecter. It's a shame they didn't bring him back. But a good example of uh, a character that's been played over and over again that I like is Philip Marlowe. Uh, Philip Marlowe is one of my favorite detectives from the novels, and he's been played by quite a few actors from James Garner to Humphrey Bogart. My personal favorite incarnation is Powers Booth from the HBO series. And every time I reread a story, I tend to picture Powers Booth as that. So that definitely happens with me, too. Well, and sometimes in the case of the old pulps, look at Mike Hammer. I can't decide what Mike Hammer I like better. Armand Asante from iJury, Stacey Keach from the, the two TV series, or Darren McGavin from the old TV series. They're all so different, such different versions of Mike Hammer. They're all Mike Hammer, aren't they? Well, I have to say no, because uh, I'm a huge fan of the Stacey Keach, Mike Hammer series, the original run. The 80s one? Yeah. Well, there was there was that period where he went to jail and then got out. The original one that aired, the very first one. I have to say that even though I love Keach as the character in that series, he's not the Mike Hammer of the novels. He is Philip Marlowe. And if you've read the novels, you know exactly what I mean. Hammer is not the white knight, okay? Uh, Philip Marlowe is definitely, well, I like to jokingly call him the off-white knight. You know, he, he's a man with morals and standards and a code. Hammer is vicious. He is more like uh, a guard dog that just gets let go once in a while. Which is and what Armand Asante brought in I Exactly. I was going to say, I would say in this case, Armand Asante captured it I think he was closer to the way it was written than Keach was. Again, I love Keach. I think that I love that series and I love him. I just don't think what he was playing as written was Mike Hammer. It was really, it was Philip Marlowe again. Well, and then I always have a problem with Darren McGavin in anything because I just see, you know, his Mike Hammer is really just proto Carl Kolchak, really. Yeah, I would say in that case, he was just undefined. He was more of a generic, and I'm doing air quotes, detective as opposed to. Well, any character, in all honesty. Then, if anyone wants to adapt this episode to something, they would contact Cecil where? They could contact me at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, goodbadflicks on YouTube, and all of your favorite uh, social media type things. Well, what if it's not my favorite social media type thing? Well, uh, well, it's I should say it's the two, you know, Facebook or Twitter, but not Instagram and and Yik Yak and all those other things. Is Yik Yak a real one? I'm so out of touch it actually might be. It is. Really? Yeah. I thought you made that up. Okay, fine. 
<laughs> no, but yeah, Yik Yak is, uh, I think at first I was like Zigzag, and I was like, you know, thinking uh, Max Headroom, but then it was, uh, Blipverts. It, yeah, Blipverts, but now the, but, but Yik Yak, is, well, it's a whole other thing. So Fred, if people would want to contact you, they would do so where or how? Well, they can telegraph me dot, dot, dash, dot, dot. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually I don't have anything set up just now, but I am going to be rebuilding However, my old Facebook page is still up, the Movie Apocalypse Facebook, and I still monitor it. Once I get something going, I'm going to set up a whole new website, Facebook page. Uh, I will put all that on the Movie Apocalypse page, so they can still get me there. Yeah, if anyone wants to contact me, although why would you, you know? I mean, you might want to invite us to a con. I mean, Cecil and I could get into a fist fight at a, at a horror con. That would be great. And you know the fans would love that, Cecil. Because we, we don't fight beard. enough, according to them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I don't think they want, you know, like like actual fisticuffs. I think they want, like, just yelling back and forth. But I, I don't, you know, I, I, like, you'd have to, like, run over my foot or something for me to really get that angry at you. Well, you can contact me at 1201beyond.com. The email is 1201beyond at gmail.com. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.